Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder, and today I am going solo, and I'm privileged to be speaking with Greg Fries. Uh, he is a master, man of many talents, uh, has published kind of all over the EMS world. And uh, Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Ed, for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Greg, give, a, give the listeners who haven't been initiated a little bit of your background, and uh, then we'll start talking about how we can seize the means of production, <laughs> overthrow, <laughs> overthrow the, uh, uh, the capitalist overlords. Uh, sure. So I'm not quite sure I'm going to give uh, marching orders to a revolution. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I came into EMS a little bit of a different route in that I was in the summer camp business and leading kids on wilderness expeditions, uh, which led me to first aid training, wilderness first aid, wilderness first responder, and living in a small town in rural, very rural northern Wisconsin, became an EMT. And uh, because I had this uh, background in trip leading and uh, recreation and adult education, I kind of took a different route into EMS education in that I was already an adult educator. Um, and so that quickly opened a lot of doors for me to help teach EMT classes, teach CPR and first aid. I worked for a while for uh, Wilderness Medical Associates, teaching Wilderness First Aid and Wilderness First Responders. And then in 2005 became a paramedic um, because I also had this interesting route that I already had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. By the time I became a paramedic, I had already done a lot of writing uh, as part of my education. And at, at some point, I got sort of a whim to send an article at the time to EMS World magazine. Uh, and Nancy Perry, editor-in-chief, uh, called me up and said, yeah, we'll accept this article and what are you going to write next? And I thought, oh, that never occurred to <laughs> what, me. That, what do you mean next? <laughs> yeah, right. And so that opened, you know, doors writing for EMS World. I uh, wrote for a long time for EMS1.com. And then about eight years ago, uh, EMS1 invited me to be the first editor-in-chief of EMS1.com, which I did for, I believe, uh, five years or so. Uh, before becoming the editorial director, which means I supervise the editors-in-chief of EMS1.com, Police One, Fire Rescue One, and uh, Corrections One, as well as EMS One. I think I might have said that twice. Uh, regardless, um, it keeps me in uh, public safety. I have kept up a paramedic license all these years since 2005, uh, but for a whole bunch of reasons, I haven't actively worked on an ambulance for a long time. Uh, got kids, got a full-time job, uh, lots of reasons, but like to think that I'm still a paramedic just in a different way than people that are out on the streets. Well, and right. And there's no, you know, one right way to be any type of, any type of person, but to work in any type of profession. Um, and I do think that there's an important role in academia, just saying like, well, what if, you know, exposing thought experiments in writing, I think yeah. it's important um, for any industry. Um, but I think it's also nice to be able to sort of take a step back and look at an industry from sort of a 10,000 foot view and say, you know, I, I'm not directly related to this, but is this the way that we want that? Like, is this, is this the way we want the industry to be? Is this who we want to be right. sort of in the world? Um, and and I'm going to link EMS one in the show notes and uh, specifically some of the articles we're going to talk about so everyone can read them um, 
you know, Greg has been a very prolific writer. You guys can find all of his stuff on EMS one as, along with a whole bunch of other information. But what I wanted to talk about with you today, Greg, is in January, you wrote a piece talking about a thriving wage for EMS. And this has sort of been, um, it, it is sort of a hot button issue. And I think it has been for a while because generally speaking, EMS is sort of at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to salaries. Um, one of the interesting things I noticed in your article was you linked to the MIT living wage calculator, which will also be linked in the show notes in case you guys want to know how much you have to make to live in your county, uh, which uh, it, it's it's kind of eye opening. It's a it's a little exposing to see how much it actually costs to live. So I, I want to know kind of what was the impetus behind that and what did you find while you were researching and writing the article? Yeah, thanks, Ed, for the compliments on the article. And I think you described well the approach that I often take to writing is um, I read a lot outside of EMS and then find stuff and I think, well, what's the connection here or the impact of this to uh, the EMS profession? And um, and that's what I tried to do here, um, you know, finding out about this uh, M- MIT uh, living wage calculator, which I also think is fascinating. I've punched in uh, different places around the country just to get a sense for how much variability, uh, because we know I'm in central Wisconsin. I believe you said you're in New Jersey. Uh, yeah. Cost of living is going to be significantly very, different, very different for the two of us. I'm in a very rural uh, county. Um, you, you might be really close to New York City, where it's probably even more extreme. You might have listeners and California or fast-growing metro areas. I, I just um, saw something that the average rent in Manhattan is upwards of five thousand dollars a month. Yeah, that's which, which crazy. Is, like, but if that's bananas to that? me. <laughs> yeah, and even if you could afford that, uh, why would you want to spend that much money on a small apartment for the uh, privilege of living in Manhattan? <laughs> right, a, a great place to visit. Uh, the the so then you know the the thing that I'm often exposed to and. Um, Maybe you're familiar with the EMS trend report we've done for many years with the Fitch and Associates, and we've asked the respondents to rank the um, the top problems or top concerns in EMS and compensation or low compensation is always uh, a top concern. Also, the concerns about retention and recruitment, and of course, those things go together. Uh, that it's you know hard to recruit people to work for a, a low wage, especially if that wage is going to be uh, below cost of living. Um, and it's also uh, difficult um, to retain people when they realize like it's going out faster than it's coming in. And even if I'm picking up overtime or adding a second EMS job or a third EMS job, it's even more difficult. Uh, and then at about the same time that I became familiar with this MT, MIT uh, living wage calculator, I read an article in Inc. magazine, or no, Fast Company, um, and it was about competing for talent. And you know, this is on the mind of uh, anyone in EMS, but hiring I do uh, for our editorial team is like, how do we find people? How do we recruit them fast enough that they say yes to us uh, versus a, a different employer? And one of the things this article introduced was the idea of a thriving wage uh, and not just a living wage. And that really got me to thinking about like, okay, what does a thriving wage mean for people that work in EMS? And I know you work in EMS and maybe it's something you've given thought to of like, what would you need to thrive? Mm -hmm. 
Well, and, and certainly I think that when I remember when I started in EMS, there was kind of a running joke that if you join, you know, if you become a paramedic, you take the vow of poverty. Yeah. Um, and, and it was interesting to me, you know, now, God, 15 years ago, um, <clears throat> you know, time flies, doesn't and, it? God, it does. Um, it was interesting hearing that because I, I felt like it was a very glib, you know, people would be like, oh, well, come on down. Like, well, I don't understand why we're accepting, you know, that, that we're all broke. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's always been very interesting to me that we accept as an industry that in order to live, you need to have a second job or you need to have overtime. Um, and, and we were talking about this off air, but it, frankly, it took me going to graduate school uh, to realize like, oh, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Um, and I, I think that, I, I guess I, I want your opinion on, do you think that management or leadership tends to take advantage of their workers because the workers know that this is just the way the industry is. And like, do you, I, I don't know that, I don't yeah. know that I want to say that it's a, it's a purposeful thing, but I think that's where I almost think that's where we kind of end up. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's intentional or conscious. Uh, the, you know, for a long time, and I think this is a lot of industries, there was, a lot of potential workers like the workforce um, and people coming into the labor force, uh, whether it was say teaching or paramedics or fast food, there was always people willing to come in at an entry level rate. Um, And so if there was attrition uh, either through retirement or people looking for other careers or moving to other employers, that was okay because there was people ready to come in and, and fill those seats. Uh, and the, I think it's also really difficult for a lot of employers to quantify uh, replacement costs. Um, and, you know, you know, and that might actually be easier of like, oh, when we do a search for new employees, it costs us this much to uh, run screening programs or an application process. And, you know, we can say it costs us much to run a three-person truck while we've got, you know, a new hire. Uh, even more difficult, though, is to quantify, like, what's the loss of, like, if we have a five-year employee leave, what are we losing in terms of, like, their institutional knowledge? Is there reputational damage to the agency? What's the morale uh, change if, the, if that person was a leader or a popular um, and of course, there also can be the flip side of sometimes you can lose somebody that's like a net benefit of like, well, that person was toxic on the workforce. Um, so the was it conscious or intentional? I'm skeptical about that. I think the predicament we're now in, though, is that the uh, and across industries, there's just not people moving in to the labor force for specific positions, either because, you know, we've had a million people die of COVID that's got to affect the workforce in some way. And then also people just like, we've had two years to sort of like assess, like, what do I want to do with my time? Uh, My years on earth, like, how do I want to spend it? And uh, working two or three jobs uh, to get by is uh, for good reason, unappealing to a lot of people. 
Absolutely. And I, I personally know, and I, I hate to appeal to anecdote, but I know people that, especially during COVID, they just were like this. Um, no, this isn't worth it yeah. for me. Um, so I, I think that this is sort of the, the perfect storm, right? Where we already had a, a shortage of providers in the industry. And now we sort of have gone through this pandemic where I think it's, you know, debatable that we're completely through it, but it's fine. Like, you know, we're toward the tail end of it. And yeah. So now, aside from trying to encourage people to join EMS, we have to jump through the hurdle of you're not going to get paid much. Also, it's super dangerous. Also, here's COVID. And I, I guess the, the important question, and I, I just want your opinion on it, is given those three hurdles moving forward in whatever, 2022, 2023, how do we try to recruit people without seeming ignorant to those three underlying factors? Yeah, I'm not going to answer a question directly. I would start. <laughs> like, I would start. Yeah, by, I don't, don't want to do that. <laughs> I would start by looking around at the people that are still here. Like if you're running an agency right now and, you know, you've had people work the most challenging two and a half years in the history of EMS, uh, those people that have made it through this, like, what's unique about them? What are the traits and characteristics that have, uh, you know, I could call them survivors, but also like thrivers. Those are people that have found something satisfying in EMS that they've stuck it out uh, during this really challenging time. So my first priority would be uh, we want to understand those people. We want to appreciate those people and we want to continue to work to retain them uh, because there's something really unique about the people that have made it through the pandemic uh, that is worth uh, making them our first priority. And then, and then now to your question, um, you know, we, there was a question we asked on trend report, two questions this year. One was about, um, you know, rate your agency's uh, recruitment efforts from like zero to 10. Zero is like, we're really struggling. Tens, no problem at all. And then, you know, how's your company doing at retaining staff? Zero is like, we really struggle to retain. And 10 is like, no problems. Like, we're, we're doing great. And when you look at the, the line plot for those two questions, they basically mirror each other. Uh, so if you're an agency that's doing well at retaining people, you're probably also doing well at recruiting people. And if you're an agency that's struggling to retain or struggling to recruit, you're having the same problem. So the, you know, they go hand in hand. Um, and, you know, at the most basic level, I think it, it starts with like, we got to have compensation that's competitive. And of course, EMS is faced with all sorts of revenue restrictions because of Medicare, Medicaid. Right. It's also insurance. a loss leader for most organizations too. Well, especially in uh, well, yeah, could be, I, I should say in our in our state, many of the yeah, many of the projects in, are loss leaders. Yeah, except that it's also a funnel for bringing patients in for like high revenue care, right? Um, STEMI, stroke treatment, etc. Uh, the um, so compensation, and then I think the next really important thing is direct supervision, and that's the you know your field providers, you know. We've, you've probably said it a dozen times on this podcast before is like people don't quit a job. They quit a bad leader. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's 
clear across industries and EMS is the same is that, you know, if your field supervisors, those people like providing leadership, uh, especially on the one-on-one level to field providers, if they're excellent, it's going to be easier to retain people. If you have uh, very few and weak and poorly prepared field supervisors and middle managers, you're really going to struggle to retain talent, no matter how quickly you can recruit and bring people in the door. So the two areas I'd focus on is trying to raise wages and improving your field supervisors. So I, I guess the next question would be the, the organizations that are recruiting and retraining and retaining people very well is what are they doing different than other organizations, do you think? Yeah, that's a really great question. And one we've uh, been asking people for years of like, stand up, wave your arms, tell us uh, what it is that you're doing. <laughs> tell us the secrets. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think one example that comes to mind, an agency I followed for quite a while is Royal Ambulance, and they're in the Bay Area of uh, California. Um, and I've never visited. I certainly haven't worked there, but I've read about them a lot. Uh, they're starting by making a great culture, a place where people want to be. They're proud to work there. Um, they have you know, a lot of focus, from what I can tell, on their field supervisors. And then acknowledgement that people come into EMS for different reasons. Uh, and this is something I've been advocating for for a long time is that, you know, it's not a bad thing if somebody wants to work for your organization as an EMT for a year while they apply to medical school, like ha- give that person a great experience. Yeah. And then maybe when they're a physician, they might be a potential referrer of uh, patients and services to you, uh, but also just a great alumni or, you know, and Royal accepts this, that some people are going to have a career at Royal, but others want to be firefighter paramedics or want to become a nurse. And they set up alumni groups and they even have like alumni come back and say, you know, to current staff, like, I'm now a firefighter paramedic and this is how I leveraged my Royal experience to become a firefighter paramedic. Uh, And so, you know, that just sort of acknowledgement that people come into EMS for different reasons uh, and that's okay. Not everyone needs to be there for 15 years. Forever. Yeah. 30 years. I I think that's really interesting to just the, the concept of having alumni groups, you know, mm-hmm. coming back to their former organization is very alien to me. Um, just because I, I think that when people, you know, leave leadership or they leave an organization, it, I think it's my experience, at least, that EMS workers tend to be like, I'm going to burn that place to the ground when I leave. Yeah, right. Um, so that, that's that's very fascinating to me. It's like knowing that that's an option is is very interesting because again i you know anecdotally i know people who were just like uh no i'm i'm leaving that place and i'm never coming back like I, i'll yeah. never wear you know the color green ever again yeah. for example um so i i think that's very interesting so if you're a, a an under i don't know underachieving project and you see an example like royal and you realize that okay there's there is a morale problem there's you know some type of fundamental issue within my staff and you, you recognize that, I guess how, in, in your mind, what is the best way to at least take a first step toward adjusting your, your company or your organization from underachieving to overachieving? Understanding that this, this process might yeah. take five years. Right. You know, how, do you, how do you begin that process? That's a really great question. 
the, I think it's a couple things. One is becoming a student of organizations that you admire that, you know, who do you feel like is doing this right and study them and visit them, read about them, uh, talk to them. That's one thing. And then, you know, so it's looking outside for things you know, might bring inside, but then also looking inside. And uh, I, I think it, in my work experience and across industries, I think it's really clear that leaders don't spend enough time with the people that are delivering the service. Um, and I don't necessarily need like EMT managers to be like riding second on a truck, you know, eight hours a, a month no, or something. Being, being present would be probably good. And yeah, have being present of who you are. Yeah. Be out in the garage, you know, show up at the hospital while people are like standing on the wall, talk to them, you know, go on some rides. The, um, you know, that one-on-one piece is really good. And then I also think that we should be doing more employee engagement surveys so we can look sort of across the workforce um, and probably make those pretty regularly, at least annually, if not a couple times a year. And then you actually got to do something with that information. So, you know, like if I was your supervisor and I was to talk to you one-on-one, First, I want to like really listen to you. I don't want to be looking at my phone, my watch. I want to hear what you're saying. I want to give you feedback about the work you're doing in a way that's constructive and helpful. You're going to have ideas for me. Um, and you know, if I'm supervising 20 people, I might get 20 different sets of ideas. But I also got to go back to you and say, Ed, you know, we've heard your concerns about wall time. And here's the things we're going to do to address wall time. I know that doesn't include your idea, but let's see how these other things work. And then with engagement surveys, if you look across the staff, you got to go back to the staff and say, we asked you this and you told us this, even if staff are like, this place is awful, um, you got to share the results with them. And then also what to do with them, uh, with those results. I was at an experience where we took a cross-company employee engagement survey year one, no results. Like it never got reported back to the employee what the results were. Year two, um, some really sort of vague themes. And then year three, it was like, hey, managers, here's some stuff we learned. See what you can do about it. And like, that wasn't enough for me. Like... I, you know, year one, of course, was the worst case scenario, but year three was still like, oh, yeah, like I need some tools. So especially when you report down those engagement results to your supervisors, especially those field supervisors, like here's something we learned. Here's something specific we want you to do to try to address this concern. So if if I'm in leadership and I, I realize all these concerns and I decide, you know, all right, I'm going to be forward thinking i'm going to be forward moving um it, let's say that i've i've looked at my hospital's financials um which in a state like new jersey is beneficial because all the hospitals are nonprofit and their tax returns are publicly available guys yeah. um and you know you see that it, for example hospital systems in in 2020 made billions of dollars in profit but the, you know they're nonprofit, so they wrote it all off how do you if you're a leader how do you take that information knowing that there's you know buckets of money sitting off to the side over here 
And then you realize your staff has to have a better wage, you know, a living or a thriving wage. How do you, I guess, how do you broach that topic if you're in management and you have to go to, you know, C-suite upper management, the people that make financial decisions? How is that? I, I, I guess I want to break it back down to like when it comes down to its most foundational, I guess, state, um, everyone's familiar with the term, you know, money talks and bullshit walks. So if I'm in, you know, middle management or, you know, EMS leadership, and I realize that like, okay, my employees are making $12 an hour and they need to be making more than that. How do I broach that topic with the people that handle the pocketbook without seeming like, you know, I'm, I'm begging for scraps. Yeah. That, that piece of, of EMS getting attention, whether it's in a hospital system or from a city manager or even in a contract you're trying to negotiate uh, is, is really complex. And one of the things that I um, would advise leaders to do is, okay, so there's like levers that I can pull today and have a, and make an impact on the staff. Like I can be present. I can study how to run better one-on-one meetings. And like I can start making an impact today in those areas that will improve satisfaction and improve retention. And then simultaneously, there's projects that I need to be doing as a leader that are going to you know, make a difference in a month or six months or a year from now. The, um, there's probably other people in EMS that are better equipped to have this conversation of like, how do you get EMS at the table of, of top management and C-suite level decision makers um, to then either improve working conditions, improve wages. Uh, and there's a group called uh, AIM High, which is a group of uh, high-performing EMS systems. And uh, they did a webinar recently. Unfortunately, I didn't attend it, but the focus of it basically was that, you know, because of the American Rescue Plan, there's communities all over the country where city managers are looking at like this pile of money and being like, what do we do with this? Like EMS, do you have any ideas? And EMS needs to be ready to be like, well, yes. <laughs> yes. Give it to us. <laughs> yeah. We have ideas, uh, but to articulate uh, like, yes, we'd like to use it in these ways. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Matt Zavadsky, uh, but he's uh, part of that AIM High group. He's with uh, MedStar in Fort Worth, Texas. And he and probably Rob Lawrence, who used to be at Richmond Ambulance Authority and now is, uh, does all sorts of things, including the California Ambulance Association um, and American Ambulance Association. The two of them would probably be better able to answer that question of, okay, uh, we want to go to the C-suite and advocate for EMS. How do we do it in a way that we get attention. Uh, so I'd be happy to introduce you to them offline yeah, for that, a future podcast. And, yeah, that's great. And that's, that's yeah. more than, more than a fair response. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> something that, that Dan and I had talked about off air and he, he wanted to have me ask you this from now moving from the management level to the staff level. Mm-hmm. Do you think that progressing, I guess providers progressing and then making the living wage and the thriving wage. Do you think that that is achievable without unionization? And if so, how? That's a great question. Uh, 
So I've never uh, worked at a place where there's been a union, so I don't have any direct union experience. Um, and the, so yes, it's my impression that often like union-based or uh, especially fire-based, but other organizations that have a union, um, pay and benefits seem to be better. Uh, I also think there's employers across the country where people are making a thriving wage uh, without being unionized. The, um, the, this is probably a cop out to the answer. Um, when I was actively working in EMS, I had many converse, I, I was always PRN, uh, mm -hmm. which I loved. So I would just work when I wanted and I almost always would have different partners, which I thought was great. And uh, so I was sort of like a new person for people to complain to. Uh, and I, <laughs> I said to me, that new guy. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I didn't mind it, but I would often say to people like, that sounds awful. You should leave this place. Like, <laughs> it doesn't seem like you're happy. You should leave. Um, which would often transition to a conversation of like, what would you rather be doing? Or where would you rather be? Um, and a bunch of them ended up like, you know, six months later, I'd see them and they'd be like, hey, this is my last shift here. Because uh, after I talked to you. Because I you talked to, me out of it. <laughs> I, I decided to go somewhere else. And like, you know, so individuals have agency. Like if you're unhappy and um, it's also really hard for one person to like, I know there's examples of one person, you know, can make a difference, but sure. there's a lot of inertia in any organization, including EMS. Uh, and if leadership's bad, working conditions are bad, wages are poor, um, and you're unhappy, like one route is to try to like change all that stuff. Another route is to find a different job. Right. And you're... And you think about your life force and what you have, like maybe finding a different job is the better route to go. Right. And, and certainly you have to have some type of satisfaction and like, we don't want to drive people out of the industry, but no, you're right. If you, if you wake up every day and you know, every day you like it, the, the line from office space, you know, every day you see me is the worst day of my life. Yeah. Um, you know, then yeah, certainly you want to try and pursue something else, which right. I, I think kind of it, it, to an extent, it speaks to the problems with retention where, you know, you can't get you can't get a group of five medics to agree what color the ambulance is, let alone, you know, what what the wage should be. And then I think there's also an underlying sort of stigma about discussing wages that yeah. we've developed in, in, in our culture. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I think that I, I like the idea of having sort of, um, I, don't know, I, I guess, like a, a, a catalytic individual where, you know, this person tries to foment change and then, you know, people start realizing like, Oh yeah, that there's some interesting points there. Right. Um, and I think that that's important. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, I don't know that there's right answers either. Um, I yeah. think that, you know, we've talked on the show about if you've seen one EMS project, you've seen one EMS project where, you know, what's, what's good for my shop might not necessarily be good for your shop, which I think makes it more difficult because I can say, and especially just with the diaspora that we have of EMS around the country, where in New Jersey, paramedics are hospital-based. Right. But 
the EMTs and basic life support services are sometimes municipal, sometimes they're commercial, sometimes they're county-based. And then that just gets more complicated as you go across the country. So I, I think it's good that we have you know conferences and speeches and articles of people saying, this is what we should do. Right. But it, I think it's incredibly difficult to take all that information and apply it to your individual project. And especially if you're you know a, a commercial for-profit organization where you know, I have to pay my employees $12 an hour, because if I don't, I don't make a profit. Now, I think there's an argument to be made that if that's how you do it, then you shouldn't be in business. But, you know, those industries also uh, exist and are problematic. Yeah. So if, if we're trying to increase recruitment, and increase retention. And, you know, obviously, the most simple way to do that would be just to throw money at your employees. Um, And, you know, as someone working as a staff member, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can understand why management would have that sort of concern. I think one of the, the good ways that we can kind of increase retention is and, and recruitment is by changing or enhancing our educational standards. And I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that as far as whether it's, you know, compensating people for going to school or, you know, having you know, you, you sign a contract, we'll put you through EMT or medic school, and then you work with us for three years. I, I'm wondering yeah. what your thoughts on those programs are and if they're helpful. Well, of course, I'm biased to higher education, having gone, you know, high school, bachelor's degree, master's degree, uh, out in the working world, and then I have a technical certificate as a paramedic. Uh, the, um, yeah, I think it's one of the really interesting developments over the last, say, three or four years in EMS is uh, the increasing number of paid academies. So we're going to hire you to be an EMT student. We're going to pay you a 40-hour week, work week. Um, and I've seen those programs anywhere between like $10 and $20 an hour are going to pay a wage while you're in school and you'll have a job waiting for you. And you know it's going to be really interesting as more as those people come into the workforce. Uh, first of all, I think it's a great, uh, way to approach building a workforce, a relatively uh, small investment to bring people into the um, ambulance and basically get them on the job. And you have 10 weeks or whatever to uh, get them in part of your culture and just how this is how we do business. The, um, you know, in a year or two, those people might start looking around and being like, hey, I'd like to become a paramedic. Are you also going to support my education to become a paramedic? And if those organizations don't say yes, there's a good chance those people will be like, oh, well, I'll just look for an organization that will pay for me to become a paramedic. And then in another year or two, they might say, wow, I have uh, enough credits to get an associate's degree. But if you help pay for two more years of school, I'd have a bachelor's degree. And uh, so I actually think that's going to be a good problem that EMS organizations are going to have is uh, people saying, continue to support my education as you've done since I first started here. Um, I've, uh, and then a related note, the, the best time to start working on your bachelor's degree is today uh, or yesterday. Uh, and don't wait. It's never going to be easier than it is right now. Uh, even if you have like, you know, three jobs, two kids, uh, ex-wife, uh, a car payment, uh, and you're behind on rent, 
uh, it's never going to be easier than right now. So just get started. I think a bachelor's degree will give people so many more options should they want to leave EMS, if they get hurt, if they want to pursue additional education, like going to nursing school or medical school or becoming a lawyer, whatever, um, you know, keep pursuing education at least to an associate's degree. Uh, but I would highly recommend a bachelor's degree just because of the number of doors. Okay. I have a bachelor's degree in recreation and I'm a editorial director for a digital media company. Mm-hmm. Like there's some <laughs> generalizable skills I learned along the way uh, that helped me out. I think that's that's one of the interesting things about education too is, and it, it kind of sucks because you don't really get that view until you're through the other side of it is yeah. that, hey, it doesn't matter what your bachelor's degree in is in usually like most places want you to have a bachelor's degree to prove that you can sit in a room for four years and stay on task, yeah. um, which is a whole other conversation for, for a whole other day. Um, but Greg, thank you so much for joining us. I think a lot of these ideas that we've discussed are, uh, are actionable to some level for everyone that's listening out there. Um, everything that you've, that you've written on the MS one and the MIT calculator is going to be in the show notes and uh, we'll put your contact in there in case anyone uh, has any questions for Greg. And do uh, you have any last words, Greg, before we, uh, we head out? Oh, well, thanks, Ed, for the opportunity to uh, speak with you today. I think the, um, my final words is you know, we ask people across public safety, so please fire EMS. Why is it that you've chosen this career? And always the number two reasons are uh, opportunity to serve my community and to take care of other people or to help people, uh, especially in a time of need. And so if you're listening and you're at an organization that is honoring your desire to serve your community and to help people when they need help, you're probably in a good spot. If you still are feeling that calling and you're in an organization that isn't helping you, Uh, serve your community or help other people in need, uh, look around because there's organizations that want you. Perfect. That's a great place to end it. Greg Freeze from EMS One and everywhere else. Thank you for coming on the show. And for the overrun, my name is Ed Bowder and we'll talk to you all next time.